Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, and good morning, uh, fellow podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of Live Bullions with your friends Alex and Costa. Uh, Costa, how are you? Quite well. How are you, Alex? Quite well. I I do well, my friend. I do well. I have uh, shotted my coffee, my fourth coffee of the day. I've been staring at a screen all day, getting all the vitamin D. It's a it's a great time to be a game developer. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the saddest commercial <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> Try this at home, kids. Yeah, uh, uh, this hasn't aged me at all. Um, so we have a awesome episode for you indie game devs out there. Um, we're very lucky to chat with Daish Milani um, from founder of AdLife Technologies, virtual reality-based neurological rehabilitation. Uh, has also got a focus on UX, UI prototyping, 3D animation, VFX and game design, lecturer at SAE Institute Australia. Um, yeah, just incredibly knowledgeable as most um, startups, entrepreneurs are, especially in the um, virtual reality area. And we had a good chat, didn't we, Costa? Mm. Didn't we, Costa? Yeah, we did. He spoke a lot about uh, the challenges, I guess, of working in VR. Uh, it was it was pretty cool. He we spoke about like the future of where VR might be going, um, and like in comparison with you know what other uh, bigger companies are doing. Uh, we spoke about the product that he's working on uh, for for helping and analyzing uh, on in an ongoing basis the. Uh, your rehabilitation and kind of tracking that that was really cool uh, and and also just from a game design perspective uh, some of the VR games that that he, uh, his company is working on uh, and just kind of the inspiration for those for those games and how those games are just they're quite simplistic in nature but get get you to or get the patient or the person using the, the product to to really use their muscles and and engage different uh, things on their body to to help with rehabilitation which i thought was really cool that kind of serious games uh fusing of of rehabilitation with video games that was really cool mm. and the games themselves they're not uh you know basic like touch this light touch this square mm. touch this circle like it's they fit within a narrative like we talk about this uh one the video is available online of uh the you know the the viewer the player sorry i should say going down a river on a on a rowboat and having to reach out and touch different lights um so you know hiding you know the what's actually going on you know making it not visible to the player so they can just experience a game and not have to feel like you know they're part of a you know experiment or rehabilitation thing or something like that like it's i thought that was real important also talking about how different you know vr technologies you know, they're developed 10 years prior and they're just not made available until now um, mm. for whatever reasons, patents or the technology isn't really there for the speed. Like it's developed, the software's developed faster than the hardware, I guess you'd say, and had a good good chat about that. Um, yes. So without further ado, let's bring that on. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, on mobile, uh, chuck us a five-star review. It really helps get the podcast out to new people. Um, 
Costa, the uh, Apple boy. <laughs> what do we have to do on for any, that? On any platform, even on, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or whatever you're listening to this on, yeah, uh, a rating and review would definitely help us out with getting the, the podcast out there. So, And yeah, if you don't feel comfortable with that, just tell a friend. Tell, tell the person working next to you at your studio you're currently at or wherever you are, even if you're at a supermarket you're filling shelves, tell your friend, huh? <laughs> even if you're on the bus. Even if you're on the bus, tell the stranger. Start a friend. Start a friend, make a friend. Tell them find we sent friend. you. You find a friend. Um, and yeah, enjoy. Cool. All right. So, Daesh, speaking from your experience uh, working in VR across different sectors, what area are you attracted to the most and what area do you see having the most promising growth? Um, I guess the reason I kind of got into VR is that it's a kind of interaction that um, everyone would take a part in in some way, shape or form, whether you're into gaming or not. Um, and so the embodiment of like a human within a uh, immersive environment um, and then being able to A, do group activities, um, B, go to places that either A, don't exist or B, they can't get to. Um, was like the, probably the biggest, um, draw card for virtual reality for me. And then, um, even though it's physically focused, I guess, in many ways, uh, the psychology of it is what I was really attracted to in virtual reality, um, is just immediately how to change the state of someone to put them into a relaxed state or kind of hype them up. Um, and so those are the kind of areas that really drew me to virtual reality. Um, and I guess the technology part of that would be hand tracking, eye tracking, body tracking, um, and then the kind of um, continuous ways that those were iterated to make them more convenient over time. I was going to actually talk about, I saw you, you started off um, working in, in a preschool. How had you, uh, you know, you went from, from this like kind of, you know, teaching, I mean, I get it, it's education, that kind of stuff, um, into, into VR. Was there... Was there a sort of strong push to to move away from, say, let's say, what you were um, doing or traditionally doing, and then moving into um, into VR and into the kind of that health technology space? Well, actually, my um, first love was graphic design, and I, I studied graphic design, and I worked as a designer of many things, and that was at the dawn of the internet. So I ended up over time becoming a web designer. Um, the transition into education was uh, moving to Japan. So I lived in Japan mm -hmm. for seven years um, and I went over there actually doing design work. The traditional job you do in Japan is go and be a junior high school teacher. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I kind of went, oh, I don't want to do the normal story going to Japan. I wanted to do something different. But then I heard all of um, the stories of friends who were teaching and I really felt like I was missing out on a really interesting mm -hmm. part of Japan like being part of all these kids' lives and therefore their families and uh, like kind of just being a kind of an interesting member of the community, particularly if you lived in a smaller part of Japan. Um, so actually that was my first foray into teaching, which was three days of um, 
training and i think actually we just went out drinking on the third day so two days of teaching <laughs> training <laughs> and then um i was a teacher and i was giving a speech in front of five thousand people in japan on like the third day um but i just eventually fell in love with that and i started going further into education over there and i worked for the board of education for a little bit um and then i started basically working as a designer one day a week. I was a 3D artist one day a week. I worked in junior high school one day a week. And then on the fourth day, I became a preschool teacher, <laughs> um, which was really new and interesting, um, and I totally loved it. And so it was more like mm -hmm. understanding um, like how all these different people thought um, and just kind of get messages across to them i guess was all part of the, like the idea of design was supposed to mm. teach people how to use something or um like what the, they would like and then i guess education is obviously geared towards the same thing so i actually started mm. drawing i made a whole book of how to teach english in japan <laughs> and i rewrote their english book into a kind of a graphic novel kind of thing well. um and then that's how it kind of um I think preschool actually was arts and crafts. <laughs> it's one of the main things I loved. <laughs> I made Do you a lot find of it like it, it, it kind of helped shape, like, you know, your approach to things later on when you're doing the VR stuff and, and everything else? Oh, totally. And so it was about understanding if someone doesn't understand you, like I, and my, it was my whole life at that time, um, if mm -hmm. you're trying to communicate something in, in a language that they don't understand and they're trying to communicate to you in a language you don't understand, that was one level of interaction. One of them is you're at a certain age where you just don't understand anything. So teaching preschool was a similar conversation in many ways because I my Japanese was at like probably a preschooler level. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd finally found the group of people I could communicate with properly. <laughs> <laughs> um and so just like, and then I also worked in kind of uh, high end, we did uh, interior architecture. So I did a lot of 3D work for an interior architecture company. So I was dealing with business people, children, teachers, board of education. Um, and all of those things are the things I use now to work out how to communicate in virtual reality and obviously how to simplify communication in the areas of uh, brain injury that, that I'm working in. Mm, that's awesome and um it's kind of like the perfect uh, crash course in like how to communicate really across like <laughs> all different types of people from different backgrounds and um varying like i guess levels of of communication um even going into because you're you're at sae right like um what, what what is your role at sae that, that you do there i teach the diploma of screen media um and that has film like app design, animation, game design, and kind of group projects there, and also audio production. Um, the parts of it I taught were um, like user interface design. Mm -hmm. um, I started off with audio with them because I also studied audio back in the day. Um, that's kind of my side project, but now I just teach animation in Maya and game design, um, which is, is more like the psychology the, of game design. We that's the keyboard on, in the background there? that's your music there is the and so um nice. and so i do have a kind of a vr slash audio studio um i've been djing for 20 years 
Um, and so I've kind of DJed festivals around the world and stuff like that. And so that's always been a kind of a side hustle for me. Uh, I also studied audio mixing, mastering. Um, and I guess all of these jobs came to um, virtual reality in the end that I could do every single job except programming. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I did all the user experience, user interface and audio and 3D work if I need to do it. Although there's certainly better 3D artists than me out there. Mm. It's kind of out of necessity, uh, having to learn all the different kind of facets of of VR. Um, <clears throat> and so at, at SAE, uh, what what do you, how do you find is like the the fundamental ways of like teaching uh, ex- user experience and, and and that kind of an area? Like I, I noticed you also do like prototyping, and obviously how that plays into uh, the work you're doing at AdLife with with you know software and hardware prototyping. How have you kind of found the, the easiest way to uh, get those topics across to, to students? Yeah, I think it's actually, all of them are thought experiments, really. Like every, everything design focused is a thought experiment. And you have to actually put yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, so you need to know how, like, imagine how they think, what their life is like. Um, particularly teaching game design, for example. Um, one of the things I particularly teach my students is, so these people are coming to a, a computer of some kind and they're going to take on the role of a new individual um, and they have to love that person. Um, and whether they think they're a good or a bad person is um, not as much as whether they can connect with them and then they're like, you're actually sacrificing part of your real world, as we believe this world to be, um, and your time to actually help this other person achieve this goal. And you have to care about them enough to really want to get to the end of the story for them. Um, and so if you consider that in a game, you know, you've got these uh, characters that you really want to bond with and want them to get to the end of their story. But if you're designing an app for, let's say, going to the museum... You have to think about a mother with three kids and coming into the museum and actually achieving their goals in life, which is not having stress and having a fun day out together. So you're actually playing characters no matter what you're designing for. Um, And so even things like when I'm getting my students to design an app, and one of the ones we do is going to the museum in Melbourne, we think about what kind of public transport they might be taking, uh, what they might have for lunch, Mm-hmm. All of those things are part of the user experience of how to design for someone because you just got to think about the kind of um, the whole the whole thing. And so, like mm-hmm. same with virtual reality, you think about how someone puts the headset on, how they take it off, how they charge it, is also an important factor of the user experience, not just what happens inside the software itself. I got to ask when you mm-hmm. say it's uh, important to know what the user's eating. Is that in case they're sick? Like with the with the VR side, <laughs> uh, well, let's just say um, it, or it could be <laughs> what kind of toilets you need <laughs> if you're in a facility. But it's like mm. even for a game, like if you're designing a game um, that can be played with one hand while someone's eating while they're on the go. Um, so you you know you're designing for a, a phone for a touch screen, and then a game that you can um, if it's like a turn-by-turn, if the, your train station comes up and you can just not press a button for those next five minutes and you don't just get killed, yeah. <laughs> like in a continuous mm-hmm. play game. Um, 
And then these are the kind of things that you think about when, if you're designing a game, like where are they? What are they doing? Yeah, are they eating a burrito with their other hand? Um, <laughs> and so um, it's really like factoring in all the considerations. Yeah, and if it was in the user experience of going to um, the event, it would be you know are they pushing a pram? Um, yeah, like do they have to bring a packed lunch? Um, all these different things about what their day is, and then virtual reality is yeah like are they handicapped in some way do they are they in a wheelchair do they um need to move around this environment to get comfortable or does the environment adapt to them um and so the best thing about virtual reality is that you can be the central point and you can move the world around whereas Mm -hmm. in uh in the physical world you have to move to the point where you think it's the most interesting um, so actually the world travels around you in virtual environments. Um, and so um, you've got that um, special ability to be able to transition between environments and move someone or even just reposition them. And those things become really evident when these people have limited mobility because if mm-hmm. you're three degrees off in a virtual environment, most people just rotate a little bit, but if you can't, let's just say you're in a like a heavy electronic wheelchair the environment has to adapt to you very quickly and seamlessly um so it's just that thought process that goes into all of those things so then with you speaking of um basically user experience not just in the game but how the game interacts with their life that kind of brings us to um your venture that you started over the last few years at life technologies um what can you talk to us about that Um, yeah, so actually, um, about maybe 10 years ago, I moved to Vancouver. I really wanted to work in games, um, and that was kind of the hotspot at the time. Um, and then virtual reality was kicking off, so I spent a lot of time working in with VR people over there. Um, I was actually going to work for a company called Tiny Spec that you've probably heard of. They're now called Slack. Um, and they decided not to make that game <laughs> and to make another communication tool and then booted out all the game designers. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, so I had a lot of free time and I spent time. And actually, I saw very early on amazing tools that had hand tracking, eye tracking, body tracking, which were buried for the next six, seven years, unfortunately. Um, whether it was um, for uh, technological reasons or financial reasons, who, who knows. But um, I immediately saw the value in the embodiment aspect of it. And then it was kind of like, who's going to need to know how to use a body if, if this is a tool? <laughs> and I was like, all oh, people that have had a, like a physical disability or having um, to relearn how to do certain tasks after something like stroke or brain injury. Um, and then I finally saw the, I saw the light between how to work in a fun industry like game production and also how to make a tool that was helping people. Um, and Hey, like obviously, um, even just regular games are a perfect stress release for people. And that's, you know, become more evident as time has moved forward. Um, but you know, you can take it to the next level and the next level. And I guess one of the things that, VR, like I've always considered virtual reality as digital psychedelics, um, where you could actually reprogram someone's brain and 
like uh, the, the the funny thing is like in some areas where you know people think about that kind of thing they're like what if my brain gets deprogrammed um and that's always been the the scariness of psychedelics and 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 drugs but you're actually if you're in a position where your brain is actually being deprogrammed in another format then you would you'd be more willing to try these um uh more like the wider scope of what could actually reprogram reprogram your brain um and virtual just had ticked all the boxes really um it, allowed you to visit places that you may not physically able to be able to get to. Um, it made you be able to try things that would either be too embarrassing to do in front of people or too dangerous, let's just say, if you're learning how to cook with fire or something for the first time. Um, or, you know, carrying a kettle with boiling water. Uh, and so I was just like, this has got everything it needs. Um, and then in the middle, if you want to, you can fly to outer space, which is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome like that. Um, and, like, with with the ad life and obviously with physical re- rehabilitation, have you found it that you're essentially replacing activities that, uh, you know, let's say occupational therapists or um, other medical professionals are, are getting their their patients to do to, to – uh, you know, get back to a point where they're they're more physically able. Is it? Have you found? Is it kind of like that? But obviously, with the you know with VR around it, you've got more motivation to do it. Like, is it? How have you found kind of the the um the difference between the, what traditionally people are doing and then kind of what you're doing with VR? Yeah, well, I guess there's there's multiple aspects to it. One of them is is just a more economical way to mimic what they do in traditional rehabilitation. So we definitely incorporate those aspects and the people that have been working in areas of occupational therapy and, and um, mobility and physiotherapy for many years need something tangible that they can transition into that they already know how to do it in this format and then we give them a new format to do it in. Mm. Um, and so it gives them a more convenient way to do what they were doing already and then mm. the next stage is to push it further um and i guess it turn it into an abstract version of itself in the sense that if you had to reach your arm out and i just told you to reach your arm out you could do it but if i told you to do it a hundred times you'd probably get sick of it um but if you think of a game that you've played and you just like you know mashing buttons to your hand almost fell off Mm. that's the kind of um psychological hook that we're trying to go for and so we're giving someone a reason to actually reach out um Mm. and putting something that they want in front of them um, and then, and then, if we gamify it and make it into a thing where, let's just say, it's a, a bunch of lights lighting up in front of you, and you have to touch them, um, you're battling yourself at that point. You want to get your high score, mm. or you want to um, do it, and you can do it in a way that, if you if you run out of steam, that's fine. Um, there's no there's no shame in in not like taking a break then. But if you want to really push it harder that day, you, mm. you're in the driving seat. Um, so unlike in a traditional rehabilitation session where that hour a week where you've been you've booked in advance, you have to be turned on, you have to be mm. ready to roll. People aren't always ready to, like, um, people have good and bad days. Mm. Um, and so this, the idea of this is it's the same stuff, but it's when they're wanting to do it and when they're ready to do it and, like, they're in the right frame of mind, they've got, their, you know, their days free at that mm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll know when 
the best part of their day is like mostly it would be early in the morning for most people but mm-hmm. it's up to them um and they will kind of start testing themselves and realizing what works um so, so it's kind of that autonomy yeah. you're talking about of like whenever wherever um and for how you know how long like it's kind of onto the the person to uh you know they can they can do it for as much as they want or as little as they want and they're kind of more motivated to do it as well which in turn will kind of uh yeah will mean that they're doing more essentially yeah we're trying to actually do a daily circuit and so i'm mm-hmm. kind of putting together what would be the daily circuit it goes for just over 20 minutes at this stage um and depending on the ability of the person they'll be able to choose which circuit they're on um yep. and we do like something like a breathing exercise for a couple of mm-hmm. minutes um then a cognitive skill exercise then a fine motor skill exercise then a what we're calling a voluntary movement exercise where it's a relaxation but if you move the environment adapts with you Mm -hmm. um and then um another kind of warm down exercise um and like uh, that would be someone's daily routine um and they're expected to at least do that Mm -hmm. and so we're trying to motivate them in the sense of like the saying this is what your um prescribed per day Mm -hmm. um but then once you finish your daily session you can continue on with either one of the exercises you did that day or another one that you're particularly interested in um and obviously i'm sorry sorry. i was going to add is this part of the um the companion app because i I saw on the on the website you've got like essentially a program and then you've got a few components to it being you know the vr stuff the companion app which you can track i'm assuming and then there's there's also another element to it can you can you go into that yeah, so it's, there's a bunch of things that are going to be built into the app. And, mm-hmm. um, like, there's 24 hours in a day, and people are going to need some way to communicate with the people around them for that whole time. And mm-hmm. let's just say that between half an hour and an hour, they might be doing their virtual reality. And the app is designed for the other 23 hours a day. Um, either th- if they're at a stage that they can understand their progress and want to adapt it, then they can change it through there and say, actually, mm-hmm. I want to be doing more cognitive skill exercises or I want to be doing more upper body strength exercises. Um, or if they're working with a health professional or they have a primary carer, they could do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, one of the biggest aspects of that is sharing the wins with family members and friends. Um, so making art sculptures and artwork and things within virtual reality, which are giving you a brain and body boost, but actually sharing that with other people. Um, and so uh, the data will be there. I know your movement data is also captured and stored into it, but mm-hmm. it's actually designed for more like a communication tool between people. Um, yep. And you can view yeah the artwork you've done and sent to people and start a conversation with them. So... Um, a kind of a messaging system within that. Yep, yep. But definitely it ties into um, what your daily exercise program is. Yep. And in saying that, I mean, have you, you've obviously worked with a lot of researchers um, on it. Like how, how has it also been working with uh, government agencies and, and funding bodies like, you know, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the, the disability NDIS, one. Possibly. NDIS, that's the one, <laughs> yep, yep. What's what's that been like, and kind of the relationship between that, and like, how do you? Because it's, I mean, I've I've kind of worked in in health um, as well a little bit, and, and I understand it's quite hard to kind of commercialize a product um, in that space because you're kind of 
you know, you have the, the economic, uh, you know, channel is different to the end user and all this kind of stuff. Have you found that to be a challenge? Uh, well, NDIS is an interesting beast in the sense that they've just changed how it works about three or four times yeah. um, because, and it was one of those things that they said, we don't really know how this is going to work, but we, we think we need a care plan like this. Mm. Um, when I first met people from NDIS, they were like, it's going to be a 15-year um, process of getting it right. Yeah. Um and, you know, they were doing auditing on devices and saying this is, you'd have to pass this particular test. And yeah. a lot of those things are quite expensive and they became prohibitive to new technologies. Um, but now they have a different method where you actually go through a case manager and they manage an mm. individual and that individual's um, um, program is either done through a system where they, you know, they're, it's paid for through the case manager or they can apply for items mm. themselves. Mm. We're a non-diagnostic at a certain level, um, mm-hmm. non-invasive uh, and non, like a drug-free device. Mm-hmm. So we consider it a voluntary use device. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, it can be signed off directly by a case manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually we have a kind of pricing model, which is, uh, three thousand and eighty for the first year, which would be signed off by a case manager, and fourteen hundred for every subsequent year, which is actually doesn't even need to be signed off on. Anything under mm. fifteen hundred is actually allowed to be approved by the individual. Um, and so we've we've certainly taken that into um, our mind. Um, and I guess as NDIS adapts, um, we will have to adapt with them. I guess mm. this is part of the program. Mm. Uh, we will go for a TGA approval once we have a large enough data pool and we're doing yep. predictive analysis. Um, and we'd like to offer that because lots of people can't actually afford traditional rehabilitation. So there's a significant amount of the population that this isn't supplemental to their rehabilitation. This will be the only thing that they can get. Um, yep. They might be in a rural location Um there could be other reasons why it's inconvenient for them to get to a, a physical rehabilitation mm-hmm. clinic or they might have just used up their insurance um, mm-hmm. and usually within a six to 12-week period, you're out of that. Yep. Um, so actually you need to work out different ways to fund it. Um, and so all of these different um, like lifestyles and socioeconomic groups and things that we have to factor into how people are going to use mm-hmm. this. Um, yeah. And so we're constantly just looking at what ha- people have available to them, mm. and have how have you found like the like I, I did I did a project working with um, older people to to get them to uh, get involved in video games, be it VR or, or traditional video games for physical or uh, cognitive um, improvement and that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the big things I found, and I don't know if you found this as well, is just onboarding uh people who aren't from a you know aren't so technologically minded to uh yeah get involved in say vr have you have you found that as a as a large barrier and how have you tried to kind of um combat that or you know assist with that um i well definitely about so five years ago when we were first approaching people about using our our prototype um they didn't understand how it would fit into the current system. Mm. Um, it was a big, bulky, expensive computer at that time. Mm. Um, and 
all of our tests basically failed in the sense that they couldn't use it without us being there to run it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just like, don't worry, next year there'll be a version of this that's simple and mobile. Five years later, we basically have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it took a long time. The um, uh, the Quest 2 um, was the the game changer for us. Like, mm-hmm. I, I had four prototypes, and I just got to the point of each one, and I just said, I can't launch this. Um, we had one for Oculus Go that would have been okay, but without hand tracking, uh, which I had to lose, moving from PC-based with Leap Motion, um, I was too sad <laughs> to, to launch that product, to tell you the truth. I just didn't achieve the goals that I wanted to. Um, and I knew that just around the corner, hand tracking would be there because I'd used the hand tracking that Oculus had like seven years before. They already had a prototype going when I first met them. Um, and it was, it's the technology that they're using now. Um, and so I had seen it. Um, and I was just, when, as soon as it came out, I was like, this is it. And then now I've going to have conversations with people in the medical industry and taking uh, a quest um, and showing them hand tracking and, the, and how accurate it is and how I can track every finger of someone's movement and all of their upper body skeleton just from inside the device. Um, they're like, okay, we get it. Mm. We want this. We're like, we like it now. It's convenient. Um, and it's also, you know, they're dealing with the psychology of the user, the mo- mobility of the user, um, and they're like, you know, like, don't underestimate how difficult it can be for some people. Mm. Um, and so we, this is where our user experience hat kicks in, and we go, okay, we have to know, like, it has to be not dangerous, you know, you can't electrocute yourself with it. If you drop it in the bath, you, you know, everything that all, all these different factors you go mm. in, can it, you know, if it had induction charging would be my next um, dream for the Oculus Quest. It's the mm. only thing it's probably missing. But plugging one cable in is um, probably the least of our worries compared to mm. what we used to have to do. <laughs> yeah, the Quest is, the Quest is amazing. The way it's just like portable, has everything you need, the speakers, just like, it's yeah. It's so easy to just show it to someone and go, "This is this is the product," and you put it on and that's it. Like yeah, you charge it. I used to walk like- into a room and spend half an hour plugging stuff in, and then we're already like, oh, "No yeah. thanks." Uh- <laughs> or the crazy one, the, the backpack. Remember when people used to because the driver yeah. wouldn't work or something. <laughs> that's right. I remember people used to have the. I don't know if it's still around, but the PC backpack that would strap into the that would connect to the VR headset, and it's just like. This is absurd. You know, the, the the lengths people would go to to try to make the, the VR experience portable. Yeah, well, uh, I think so actually um, uh, Zero Latency just moved from zero, um, the backpacks to streaming um, now and oh, actually awesome. kind of makes more sense to have a centralized computing system and then more lightweight, um, more destructible devices to stream yeah. to because um, mm-hmm. ultimately where the wear and tear is on a device is where it's been picked up and moved around and put down. And so, mm. if you can keep some of the computing power away from that, but these got, these things are—they've just kicked a major goal with this. Um, this week, um, Meta announced that you no longer have to have a Facebook account, um, yeah, which has on. been perfect for us um, yeah. because also, you know, that's been a barrier to entry um, about forcing people to have a Facebook account. Um, and so, we're very excited about that. All of these things that we just kind of—we just go tick. Um, mm. Now, this is just another reason why it's going to be acceptable in a medical environment. Mm. 
Yeah, it was one of the barriers as well that I found as well with just getting adoption of that. Um, yeah, you have to tell people, yeah, you need a Facebook account. And even just like trying to get the uh, the device tried out by other people, you obviously have to have some kind of account tied to it. So it does end up becoming um, a bit of a barrier as well. Um, you, you kind of, you touched on... Um, giving making it easier for for people to kind of use the device from like a hardware perspective have you have you found it difficult like from a software perspective and in the user experience there like navigating through menus and all that kind of stuff sometimes it's like not super familiar to you know use your hand or do this this kind of stuff have you found that you've had to kind of iterate to try to make that uh experience easier well actually um so the fact that Oculus has hand tracking in its own menu and all of the menus in Adlife are 100% hand tracked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, we, we designed them hand tracked first. We're actually putting a fallback for controllers, but mm-hmm. we're expecting, um, and that's, I guess, one of our biggest points of differentiation. All of our exercises are designed for hand tracking. And so if you're an individual, you might never have to use the controllers. Um, if you, that's the way you want to go. Um, we might put a few interesting things in just to use um, um, a few interesting activities that you might want to use the buttons for. But at the end of the day, our main focus is that. And if you're teaching someone how to use the device, um, they don't have to learn how to use their hands. They just have to learn what to do with their hands. Um, and they're not remembering what A button is, B button is. Um, and so we've we've narrowed it down to about three, three hand movements. Um, mm. Obviously, Oculus owns a couple of the hand movements, like the mudras to open the menu and stuff like that, mm. which is, they've locked off. Um, and for us, we're always expecting one of, uh, like, an individual to have possibly paralysis in one side of their body. Yeah. So everything has to be able to done with your left hand or your right hand. Um, and so we have all of our UI is designed for any hand um, and using... and. W- Kind of building in fail safes for different kinds of mobility, and mm-hmm. so you, you've got to switch how the sensitivity of a hand works depending on the mobility of the person. All of these things are have made teaching people um, actually a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as long as I understand a few things like where how to get to the application menu. Um, one of the saddest parts about Quest in Australia is that we don't have voice activation. Um, we did uh, on the Quest One, um, and it's been now removed for um, legal reasons in Australia. Um, but we'll get it back. And so with my Quest One, you could just go open AdLife, and it would open the AdLife, um, which was amazing. Um, mm. But because of legal reasons and Meta not wanting to negotiate with Australia currently on on that, they've just cut that part out. Um, so you can try and turn it on in Australia and it says just not available in your region. Um, and so we're planning, always planning for the future, really. And so I'm, I'm expecting that to kick back in. And so someone better put their headset on, so open AdLife. Um, and then they'll have our consistent menu. Um, because anything outside of our menu system, we can't guarantee that Oculus will keep that consistent. Um, but we're expecting it not to change that much. Um, but you know, we're also expecting the people using this to not have a gaming mind and not expecting menus to change 
constantly because actually you just get used to that in today's world. Um, Oculus did radically change the hand menu recently. Um, instead of holding your fingers for five seconds, you actually have a little switchboard which you move your hand up with, um, which may not suit people with certain mobility issues. Um, so we've got to factor everything in when there's a, a change like that. Um, but yeah, I can't wait until we have voice activation back again. Um, it means we can also include things like speech therapy as part of the interaction. Um, and of course, we know the microphone's there because we've, we've all played Walkabout Mini Golf, which is probably the coolest video mm. game. <laughs> and you just sit there chit-chatting with people <laughs> most of the time. Um, and so, you know, human interaction being natural and voice activation with natural body movement will, will be the key, really. What is the reason for um, the microphone getting disabled? Is it privacy, like a, like spam ads sort of recording, like Australian laws around that that aren't agreeing with Meta? Yeah, so we have Google Assistant and we have Alexa in Australia. So obviously it's not completely banned. Um, it would just be... Um, so well, Oculus, Facebook, Meta, whatever you want to call them, um, have a zero resistance policy. Every time anyone pushes back, they just roll back that technology. Um, and it's just because they there was actually a massive deficit for Oculus Quest. Like it was a waiting list at a period of time, and, and you could only buy one at a time, which was... So all of these things I've had to kind of go at a certain point. Like 18 months ago, I couldn't even buy more than two quests. Yeah. And I was like, well, how do we roll out this to a whole team of people? And now there's millions of them. Um, you know, they're going to be pushing 30 million sold soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they just like get it to wherever we can. Um, but if there's any pushback by governments, they cut out a big chunk of Europe for a period of time <laughs> because of their privacy laws. Um, they just said, we're not selling to you. Uh, and they're just like path of least resistance, and then we'll fix all these problems later. It's unreal. Interesting approach. I guess it does work. <laughs> I mean, to, to get like thirty million units—that's insane. Um, I saw I saw some of the games that you you have on AdLife through uh, the video. Like, there's the one where where there's a a boat or a kind of kind of kayak going down a a stream oh, yeah. where you. You pull your your hands. Um, if anyone hasn't seen it, definitely go and check it out. You you put your hands out or your arms out, and you kind of touch these lamps. They're really really cool, really intuitive ways of um, getting people to move their 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 arms or you know move around. Um, where where do where do these ideas come from, and and how have you do you have a process for that, or is it kind of like do you look at what typical um, exercises are for physical you know, mobility and then adapt the games based on that? Or is there a process there? In the early stages, we spent a lot of time in um, rehab clinics and hospitals. We're actually pretty lucky and they just let us observe. Mm. Um, And then a period of time, we actually spent time in the repat hospital and we actually sat there and we gave someone the opportunity to use VR or not. Um, And... They got, it was voluntary and they just all they had to do was agree to do it and they were allowed to try the VR. And we just watched how they interacted and watched what they were doing already. Um, basically made a list of all the different muscle groups and body movements that mm-hmm. were required um, and then to get someone to what they perceived to be a functional level um, and worked out how can we make push people a little bit further in those categories 
or how to get um, particularly high reaching things like that was that one in particular is getting someone to reach out at all different angles um, it's super hard to do in a real rehabilitation environment because you're just hanging stuff in front of them or you know you're putting your hand there and saying give me a high five um, and so I just I put myself in a in a kind of a mental state where I play through the physical part of it and then I, I just see what it looks like in my head uh, mm-hmm. and for me it would like these environments just pop into existence where I'm like mm-hmm. I'm in a boat I'm reaching out yeah. for this uh, <laughs> and really so cool. that's kind of how I think about those things and that's how I teach my students at SAE to come up with their environments um, I have a very active imagination and so I see it and I see 10 versions of it um, mm. I'll be like, they're reaching out to pick a lemon off a tree. They're reaching out to yeah. touch this thing. Um, they're opening a door handle. They're trying to like, um, there's like a, a dragonfly, um, like floating near them and they're next to a pond. Like I, I see it all and I'm just like, um, which one's replicatable and which one's, um, like, how can I get this person to do it for five minutes or more? Um, and so, yeah, I'm always like, is this a short term exercise? Uh, and it needs to go for two minutes. Is it need to go for five minutes? Need to go for fifteen minutes? What kind of interaction would you expect? Um, and then it just kind of pops into my head. And then not not every game's a winner. Uh, and actually, where, where I least expect it, sometimes I make a weird experiment, and I think this is going to bomb. But I just want to show it to people because I think it's interesting. And you see people do the most interesting stuff, and then like an OT will be like. Oh my god, that's such a hard thing to get someone to do, um, but they just did it because that's what you have to do in this particular environment. Um, and so when I hit those winners, I'm just like, all right. Um, and then I, yeah, I build from that. Then the next time I'm doing an activity, I'm like, do I want to include fifty percent of that plus a completely new movement? Um, are we isolating these movements? Um, and so it depends whether it's un. Um, guided mm. where I want to an individual to do multiple movements or if it's guided and they're actually trying to get them to do a particular movement then I'd think about how to do just that one thing yeah it's very interesting as well like you, you can actually uh, influence the you know the, what people do and that's I guess going back to what you mentioned about like the beauty of VR and the power of it of just being able to set up a certain environment virtually and people will change their behavior um, based on that environment. Once we have enough data of how people move in each environment, we'll be able to reverse engineer uh, either micro changes within them to suit certain Mm. people's needs um, or we'll just work out which ones motivate either A, people or B, certain types of people. Mm. And we'll actually be able to profile this person this is how they think they, you know, they're, they're, they're more likely to want to do something more active. They're more likely to want to do something more passive or relaxation. So we'll be learning all these things about them. You know, it's a, the big, big data philosophy is, um, the more, you know, about someone, the, the more sculpted and more, um, personalized the experience can get for them. And being in VR, for example, the simplest way to think of it is, if you put a cup in front of them and they have to reach out and pick up a cup, if they reach out and pick up the cup, next time the cup appears, it's like one centimetre further away from them. If they reach out and don't pick up the cup, then the cup jumps closer to them next time. And these tiny little micro changes 
uh, changes that only a computer can really understand. Um, like a person trying to mimic that type of micro adjustment would have to put so much effort into it. Um, and so if they usually turn the brightness down, we'll, like we can actually change the brightness of every activity after that. We can work out what colors this person responds to and actually change the colors of different items, like key items for that person. Um, and then like all these things that you just, unless you had a bucket of paint and you're in your occupational therapy clinic and suddenly painting everything, <laughs> they don't have the same ability to, <laughs> which would be pretty funny in its own right. Yeah. Um, and, um, and of course, like, um, one of the beautiful things about re traditional rehabilitation is the human interaction. And like, there's one thing that we, we, we think is not unreplicatable, but bloody hard to replicate. And there's something beautiful about human interaction. So we definitely don't, wouldn't expect people to just go down this path. I want them to have as much human interaction as possible. Um, we have our Addie, our little AI assistant. She's, she's your little friend, and she's going to give you some of that personal motivation. But we definitely want um, people to be interacting with humans as much as possible. And then the next stage would be multi-person interactive uh, rehab environments. Mm. Um, so instead of pushing a ball between you and Addie, um, we'll be able to replace it with another person. You can have a chit chat too. And, you know, we can match people with similar abilities in language. If they're like both on the, the journey of regaining, um, language and then, um, and you know, and it's an, like a judgment free, um, easy to access environment. So, um, yeah, like, um, it's more about adding a new tool to how rehabilitation works. Uh, if you're lucky enough to be able to afford face-to-face -face rehab, then definitely do that if you've got the energy to go there because um, it's inexpensive and um, takes most of your day to do a session. But, um, yeah, like, um, for the rest of the time, uh, when you've got a spare moment, you can just jump in here and... Um, and on the simplest level, it just might be an, a new way to communicate with people if you have lost the power of speech. Um, so we'll have tools within it that you can use your body to communicate with people around you. Speaking to the, um, the idea of, as, as you just said, have, having lost their speech. So do you have to make a point of differentiation in your UX testing uh, when you're um, showing these games to people with disabilities, whether they have like a gaming background? So there'd be like ones who you know, have suffered an injury, maybe they, they were playing uh, games beforehand and they have that history as opposed to ones that were born uh, with that disability and have never played a game up until that point? Um, well, there's quite a lot of factors that we we kind of um, give people a rating on just so we know what to expect. Um, at the moment, we've kind of narrowed our field down a little bit um, and it's on ability to communicate more than ability to understand a game because actually the virtual reality environments are very intuitive so we don't worry about that too much we design for humans not the other way around um, but when it comes to giving us feedback so in the early stages where like you have to be able to communicate with us because we're relying on you in particular to tell us why something is good or why it's not. Um, and then we'll be broadening the scope again 
So like um, very severely um, physically um, disabled or um, or not being able to communicate in the early stages, definitely we're, we're kind of going, um, you're going to need a, a primary carer uh, in many of those situations and anyone in that situation already does. And so it's whether we're designing directly for the individuals themselves to be d administered by a primary carer to be administered by a healthcare professional, we have to actually be able to switch that mode and that person might be in a primary care situation at some points and then they're on their own, so they'll be able to switch back to the other mode. Um, so the primary care will be able to switch it for them with the app. Um, and same with the healthcare professional, when they go to that setting um, and they want to continue use within VR, then they should be able to turn that mode on. Um, and so, but yeah, like, um, for safety of everyone. Um, and so we learn the most. It's just one of those factors that we've narrowed the scope down slightly, um, just in the short term, uh, so we can have direct communication with the people using it. Yeah. And, and um, what kind of, what kind of, kind of stage would you say that you're at in terms of rollout like are you still in that early phase where you're gathering uh information and feedback uh and and yeah when 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 do you feel like yeah where do you feel like you are you're at the moment um so we were hoping to get a product test out in the next two months um and i have a lot of experiments but i just need to actually work out what's the outcome of each particular one and what will we consider to be positive and neutral or negative feedback um, for each one? Um, and and then we'll go through our product trial, and then it's basically working out how much cloud data do we need, what's useful to an individual. Uh, so all of these things is we can store a lot of data, um, but who needs it and why, I guess, is the next aspect to that, um, and how they're going to retrieve it. And so... Um, Definitely going through that part, mm. and then um, by this, like we're, we're saying, first quarter next year we'll have the product out, and and so we've given ourselves a pretty hard deadline for that. Um, and the technology's there now; it's more like just getting everything kind of lined up. Um, I'm a over perfectionist, uh, and so everyone who works in these areas usually is, and they just want to do one more change, one more change. Mm. Um, and we have an occupational therapist on our team now, and she will tell me when enough's enough in a lot of these areas. She'll be like, "This is good. Um, you don't need to mess around with it anymore. Like this is this is this is fine. This is going to work." And instead of me just fine tuning it forever, she'll be like, "Make another one, uh, and we'll decide which one's better." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it is. It's like experiment driven, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it actually is. It's whether you're making quality and not quantity, I guess, in any game um, area where it's just like if you make two instead of and you, you make them in half the time, um, it doesn't mean they're going to be half as good. You'll probably realize that one of them is way better than the other one. Then you put effort into fixing that one. Um, but then you might find a whole new group of people that think like you keep this other one in the library and people like really... Um, like a different group of society will go, this is great for me. Mm. Um, and so there will be a combination of 
um, how to get a bigger library. Um, and if you make the, each activity um, more intelligent or it adjusts to the user, um, you end up making a much less activities that are more intelligent. Or the opposite to that is just make lots and lots of them and they decide what they want to do that day, how hard they want to push themselves. Is there a, uh, is there a, from a game perspective, is there a, uh, an, a want to kind of embed narrative into or like make it a bit of a long form? Because obviously like from some of these experiences that I'm seeing, they're very short form uh, activity based. <laughs> is there is there a want to kind of embed narrative in those uh, games? The, the narrative is your, you have a virtual house and we're going to be able to make it so you can customize that house. You'll get... Mm rewards in those things like in your oculus house you can you actually get trophies from different games that you play and i'm going to mm. use a similar philosophy um but this would be like a sharing thing so you're making art and you're sending a like a a kind of a rotatable um 3d version to someone if it's a sculpture and they're responding with they're at let's say the kids sports day and you know uh, they take a photo of the kids they'll send that back to you you can put that in a digital photo frame inside your virtual house um and so um like there's a kind of like that part of your life will evolve and we've got like things like you have to water the plants so they group and stuff mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. uh, but then Addie, your little friend she is your friend through the whole thing and she'll remember where you started and remember what you've you've done and remember where you're going, and she'll be your little friend to remind you. So she is the long-term narrative, um, and we're working on an AR version of her, so you, you like to be able to use her as you travel around. Um, I've already got an AR version where you can plonk her in a room with you, and you know eventually she'll be uh, smart enough to have voice synthesis and understand natural voice processing. I uh, also recognize environments that you know she will know you're in the bathroom and she'll be able to help you brush your teeth this will be a non-vr related activity but she'll remember what you did in vr that day and the narrative of her when you're interacting with her in ar then mm. um will be you know you know she'll just remind you good job uh going down the boat thing in Venice <laughs> mm, mm, <laughs> this morning uh just little things to keep that um so i think narrative is really important and one of the main reasons we think this is going to work in a different way than a lot of medical based software is um i think like a game designer um more than anything else mm. and i want that story like one of um one of the games i've played most recently is death stranding um mm. and i finished it ages ago and I, all I, i'm i'm in this phase at the end where you just keep delivering packages infinitely because the game never actually ends um and i like it um <laughs> and because I, I like the character and i like i feel like i'm doing good things for people and i'm i'm using the same philosophy for ad life is that you're going to want to be in there with those characters and we'll introduce more characters over time which will become your friends mm. um and doing these things with them will it'll be something that you look forward to um and yeah, them remembering parts of your life um, will be an interesting part of it and people will be able to communicate with you through it. So the narrative is you, but there yep. will be a story narrative in there as well. Um, and like the interesting crossover between those two. Yeah. And do you, do, do you kind of look at, 
Apple and these bigger companies as like, because obviously you're using some of the technology, but you know, they've got other things like Siri and, and other assistive kind of things. Do you see them uh, as competitors in a way in terms of, you know, could they roll something out that does something similar? Because it's a really awesome idea. I feel like, yeah. Do you think well, like- I hope my um, AI assistant's a lot smarter than Siri. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, Siri's shocking. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, did you say delete all your documents? <laughs> but um, but uh, <laughs> um, Siri's fine if you're getting lost and you want to be yeah. driving the car. Uh, yeah. Actually, some of them are great. And at mm. the end of the day, like I always, I'm an Apple nerd. Mm. Most of my computers, I've had almost one of every Apple device ever made. Um, and I, I look at the design of everything within us and I think of the Johnny Ives kind of the most beautiful, the most um, elegant way of doing stuff. And I want the devices... Mm. Uh, originally, the computer I was designing for Adlife was going to be made like hand-blown glass with sensors in it. Um, it was going to track your movement through your house, and I was. <laughs> um, so I've always had that kind of design sensibility. Mm. Uh, if those things happen, all the better for it. Really, we need yep. um, we need companies to take up the slack in some areas. In the sense of, I don't want to be fully designing voice synthesis if there's a better version out there that I can plug their, um, their Adlife character into, and then they can continue that narrative on their other devices in their house. Um, and so as long as we don't lose our storyline and, you know, them switching from assistant to assistant, uh, people already do that. Like, mo- you don't see too many people that have Alexa in one room and Google Assistant in the other. Mm-hmm. Like they feel like they're cheating on their um, home device, uh, <laughs> and so you actually have a kind of flavour. So I'd love for a way for us to integrate. Um, whether we become big enough to to force them to have a module that goes into Google Assistant, Siri, and other things, or we work out a way where they have an API that we can actually take advantage of the, of those things. Um, whatever works, really. At the end of the day, um, like. We can't do everything, and to get everything done at a quality level, we have to actually go every now and then, these people are doing this thing much better, how do we integrate with that? Um, I was building an IoT device that you could actually use and squeeze and do all this stuff, sending data into VR in real time, and I bumped into a company that had a much better device, and I was like, I'm going to use your device. Um, Mm. (laughs) Can you give me the API? (laughs) Um, Because that's a manufacturing problem in like if you're turning these things into physical um and a i don't want to be dealing with you know warranties and all these things for manufactured mm. devices when i could be building better software um and it has to be replaceable and so affordable replaceable when all the components so customized computers like i used to dream of actually are not the way to get a product out to people all around the world at different uh, like economic status. Um, so we have to have replicatable, non-customized hardware um, and then start with a really cheap version if we can get it out. Um, we, You know, this was a $30,000 device, which we're just hit the $3,000 mark in. And if we, as it goes further, we'll probably get it down even cheaper. Um, and so these are all the factors that I just have to kind of think about. I'd rather double the amount of people be using it and it'd be half the price. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
Uh, and with so something we kind of like to do when we wrap up is uh, key advice. Is there any advice you could give to say someone, let's say jumping into VR, you know, or wanting to develop for VR, <clears throat> or even wanting to step into um, maybe serious games like for health, you know, is there anything that you'd give given that you've uh, you've gone through it, uh, you're going through it, um, and you've you kind of learned a lot along the way? Um, well, I guess there's a couple of different factors there. Anyone getting into VR, I'm just like, do it. We need more people. Um, we need it to be intuitive. Um, and so one of the biggest things about when it comes to finding people that can either design games or use Unity program is there's not enough differentiation between who is intuitive in VR, who's used it for enough period of their time. And when it comes to hand tracking, it's a whole new level again, um, where someone who's good at programming for hand controllers may not have the intuition of how hands work. Um, and then any serious game is spend time with the people that need it um, and spend time with the people that help them. Could you try again? Mm. Sorry. Um, <laughs> heard you talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's Apple spying um, on you. <laughs> yeah, I know Siri's listening. I've got Siri and Google in this room. Um, <laughs> And, um, <laughs> Do they talk to each other? Uh, yeah, so spending time with the individuals that will use it and understand them. Um, I'd say, and definitely spend time with the researchers that research that field and spend time with the people that work with them directly and, and listen to most of what they say, but not everything. Mm. Because um, like innovation is taking risks and pushing forward. Um, and so traditional industries may not want to take those risks. You just have to explain to them what the benefits will be. Um, but yeah, so if someone wants to get into VR, I'd like if you want to get a niche job, mm. be good at hand tracking. Um, eye tracking will be next, um, and so foveated rendering and um, just at least even just understanding what people want, uh, facial recognition, all that kind of stuff that will be built into the interaction tools in the metaverse. Um, there's super niche jobs out there that haven't been created yet, and if uh, people are good at them, and like like I said, like it's I met someone and they were like, I know I know how to program, and you were like, oh, and you know VR, they're like, oh, I've done some VR, and then I was like, so what are you? How good are you at hands? And they're like, oh, I've never tried hands, and I was like, oh, give it a go. Uh, <laughs> it, it slows down your development by about like ten times, uh, <laughs> and you can't test. In, you have to build it every time, basically, to get um, the frame rate up as and actually the tracking the same as what the Quest will do. The um, air link is actually slowly getting better and better, and hmm. um, the cable link, whatever that was called, um, which which is absolutely horrible. That never worked properly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, um, do it, people. Awesome. How can people uh, find you? online uh you can find me uh my email dash at ad hyphen life.au uh, we just rolled out the new website this week um ad, so ad life.au is our web address um i have another website which actually shows you the kind of the broader scope of what i do in vr and it's called ahimsa creative xr um, and I've worked in areas of like death anxiety and dance embodiment and safety training and all that kind of stuff. And I throw it into um, the other website. Um, 
and yeah, I don't know, you can look all those things up there on Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. Um, you can come to Lot 14, I'll probably be um, hanging out there a fair bit. Uh, go to uh, some part of Stone and Chalk at mm. Lot 14, um, which is a, like an amazing uh, startup, scale-up <laughs> hub. Um, stalk me anywhere else, the Adelaide Virtual <laughs> Reality meet- Meetup, I run that, so you can come to one of the events there. We're going to be doing uh, motion capture at the um, at the void at Flinders University and doing real time capture into Unreal Engine with my virtual assistant character, Addy, um, for Ad Life. We're going to show you how that process works, um, plus a few things like how to do motion capture with Connect and stuff like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Cool. Thanks, guys.